0: Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Welcome to ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Today I'm happy to speak again with Michael Newton Keyes, author of the new book Unbelievable, Seven Myths About the History and Future of Science and Religion, published by ISI Books. Keyes is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute and a former Fulbright Scholar, After earning a PhD in the history of science from the University of Oklahoma, he won research grants from the National Science Foundation and the American Council of Learned Societies, among others. Keyes currently serves as lecturer in the history and philosophy of science at Biola University and is on the board of directors of Ratio Christi, an alliance of apologetics clubs on college campuses. Mike, welcome back.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Let's talk.
0: Yeah. Well, you've just released a book, Uh, your baby, that debunks seven of the most popular and pernicious myths about science and religion. In this and other episodes, we're taking an in-depth look at each myth, where it comes from, why it persists, and the truth of the matter. In chapter 5 of your book, which we're looking at today, you tackle this question and the myth that surrounds it. Did Galileo, the famous Galileo, did his trial show that science and Christianity are at war? What do you think? What, what discoveries, first of all, made Galileo famous? He's such a, a big name in science.
1: Yeah, so kind of leading up to the, the big question, what was the meaning of his trial is, well, what did he discover that made him the most famous scientist in Europe at the time? Well, he discovered that the planet Jupiter has moons. And at the time, given the strength of his telescope, he was able to discern four of those moons. Of course, we've found more than that since. So that was suggestive of uh, supporting the Copernican view because he was able to show that there's at least one other planet out there that as it goes around the sun, it in turn carries around it multiple moons. Well, why not Earth with our one moon? You know, So as Earth goes around the sun, there's reason to believe that it would make sense physically for it to also carry around it our own moon. But that's only suggestive. It's sort of an analogical argument, but not a slam dunk, to be sure. Mm -hmm. One other other, um, discovery that was very important, I mean, there's a number of them, but just to highlight one more, we found that the planet Venus has phases, moon-like phases. So just like our moon goes through full and then gibbous and half moon, crescent and so on, Venus goes through not all those phases, but many of those phases in a a similar manner. You can't detect those phases with just the naked eye. It takes a telescope to see them, and he was able to show that. So those are two important discoveries.
0: And did he prove a sun-centered astronomy?
1: Well, the second uh, of those two, the phases of Venus, many people have thought, well, see, finally, uh, you know, proving the Copernican view, because the the ancient view of Ptolemy was completely inconsistent with the phases of Venus, because according to that view, the Earth is at the center of the universe, and as you go up the scale up into the heavens, you've got Mercury, Venus, and then the Sun. Uh, So the Sun would have an orbit that would contain the orbits of Mercury and Venus, and the Earth being the center. So on that view, Venus wouldn't go through the complete... Phases, particularly the gibbous phases, where it's almost full, that it does, uh, in fact, go through, which the telescope revealed. So that did definitely kill the ancient view of Ptolemy, but here's the problem. There was a third alternative, the Tychonic view, named after Tycho Brahe, according to which the Earth is still in the center of the universe, but the Sun, as it goes around the Earth, it in turn carries around it all the other planets, including Venus, and so, you would see the gibbous phases of Venus, that is the almost full phases, like we actually do, and which Galileo saw through his telescope. So, that did not prove the Copernican view or the sun-centered view. Um, so, it wasn't like, you know, Galileo proved it and the church was just, you know, ignorant and, and resistant for no good reason.
0: Yeah. Well, was the church uniformly opposed to Galileo or did some support it and some... Uh... I mean, what was the, the feeling overall in the Church, the Catholic Church?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, there were a variety in, in all the branches, Catholic and Protestant, but speaking of the Catholic Church, since Galileo belonged to that Church, the majority did end up opposing Galileo, but there was a, a significant minority of theologians and scientists in the Catholic Church who did support Galileo's viewpoint and, and thought that, yeah, there is some evidence that the earth moves, not a proof, but some evidence, and... This is consistent, at least potentially consistent, with the teachings of Scripture. So it really wasn't an episode of science versus religion, because there were pro- and con-Galileo factions, both in theology and in science.
0: Right. So it wasn't cut and dry. When we tell stories, we like to have kind of cut and dry camps on either side, and it's not as simple as that here, is it?
1: Nope. And that makes the story more interesting, but also less useful for people who are just trying to badmouth religion with this story. It's, it's, it's just not that simple.
0: Yeah, it's getting back to that intellectual laziness I was mentioning. Well, yeah. what did the majority of leaders in the Catholic Church get right despite their opposition to Galileo?
1: Well, they correctly understood that Galileo did not prove the Copernican view, which we just went over. And furthermore, the leading physical argument that Galileo had for a moving earth which was his theory of tides was a complete flop by the standards of the day and even looking back retrospectively he just messed up on that theory and it it failed to show that the earth moved the tides have to do with the relative position of the sun and the moon and yeah the motion of the earth has something to do with it of course but it's not the way Galileo framed it. So the church was right the majority viewpoint within the church was right that Galileo had failed to prove the Copernican view and furthermore the church was right to say the majority within it that if Galileo or others were later to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the earth moves that the church would then require its theologians to to say well look if god made the world and god wrote the bible or you know through through the agency of human authors then the two are going to have to be consistent somehow because they have the same author. So there was this uh, openness in principle for reconciling the bible with a copernican view even though the church correctly understood that that view hadn't been proven yet. In fact, the majority of scientists were against the copernican view for good reasons. It just there wasn't enough evidence to really show that it was worth completely getting on board with. Yeah. At the t- of course that that came later of course, but at the time I'm saying. Sure.
0: And what did Galileo get right in this
1: whole affair? Well, he actually, uh, ironically, in his famous letter to the Grand Duchess Christina, he correctly understood that when the Bible describes natural phenomena, it does so using simple observational terms, or what theologians often call phenomenological language, how mm-hmm. things ap- appear. And the Bible was not intended to teach either the Copernican or the Ptolemaic, or the Tychonic view, for that matter. It, it was simply m- indicating that you know, the universe was made for a purpose, it was not an accident, and, but w- what is moving, what's at rest, was simply not within the communicative intent of, of the Scripture. Galileo got that right, as well as did a minority of, of theologians at the time, but it's interesting that Galileo, although he was a scientist, you know, as a practicing Catholic, and as one who believed in the infallibility of the Bible, which he did he he had a fairly good grasp of uh what we call biblical hermeneutics or you know the sort of the science of textual interpretation
0: right well he wasn't he wasn't a fool, that's for sure, and uh yeah, you know there's lots to say about him, but I appreciate you breaking that down there. well, did the Catholic Church imprison and torture Galileo during the trial, or was it afterwards?
1: Uh, neither. <laughs> it's almost like a, an attorney question, you know, uh, when when are you going to stop beating your wife, you know? Um, well, yeah, it was neither. Uh, he, I mean, during the trial, he was put up in the uh, lodging of the Tuscan embassy, which was his own, uh, you know, had an embassy in Rome to represent them to the Vatican, and he got to stay there rather than in the Inquisition's uh, jailhouse, which is, was the standard procedure. So the Inquisition was treating Galileo with, with unusual respect and restraint and letting him have quite a bit of freedom and, and great food and lodging. It wasn't a Roman holiday for him, but it was, it was better than it would have otherwise been. Sure. And, and as far as torture, there may have been threat of torture, but there was certainly no actual torture. And furthermore, the threat of torture was fairly empty because, look, the Catholic Church, even those against Galileo, understood... They were dealing with the most famous scientists in the world, and they treated him carefully. <laughs> yeah. So, but still, in the end, I you know, they ended up with egg on their face. I mean, this was an embarrassing episode for the Catholic Church, no doubt, but it doesn't show science is against religion. So.
0: Yeah. What can scientists and theologians today learn from this episode in history?
1: Well, scientists, particularly scientists uh, who are persons of faith, like Galileo, you know, as they're communicating the results of their work to their friends, to their ch- ch- fellow church members, sh- should be careful not to overstate confidence in their theories, to, but to indicate why they think what they do and the basis for it, and maybe suggest ways it might be compatible with their religious tradition, but just be careful not to overstate their case. And to, uh, Galileo also had uh, a reputation for Ridiculing people that he disagreed with—that's mm. that's not not advisable. <laughs> so <laughs> try to be have a little more tact. Okay. Now the theologians today, I think, could learn that uh, don't always just jump on the bandwagon of the majority viewpoint because in, in, in this episode, the majority viewpoint was the Earth-centered view that you know the scientists held. The majority, si- the majority of scientists aren't always right. You know, like today. The majority viewpoint about the origin of life and the origin of species is some updated version of Darwin's view, but just because that's the majority viewpoint doesn't mean the theologians should just say, well, we're just going to accept whatever the majority viewpoint is in science and just do whatever it takes to make the Bible consistent with that. That's a big mistake. So I think scientists and theologians both have lots of really fun things and important things to learn from this uh, episode in history.
0: Sure. Well, that's sage advice indeed. Finally, a more general question to round out our conversation here. I understand you did a lot of research for this study of myths and you consulted a lot of textbooks and uh, primary sources. Can you share with us something you discovered in your research that you found particularly amazing or surprising? Maybe something you didn't know about before or something you found really enlightening?
1: Well, one of the new angles that I bring into this book is I look at how these myths arise in astronomy textbooks when they first occur. Usually they have a prehistory before they get into the textbooks, and then sometimes they, a few of them have actually been fairly extinguished from contemporary textbooks in astronomy. So that's something that no one has ever done before, and I had a, a database, I have a database, of 130 textbooks, astronomy textbooks, spanning four centuries, uh, up to the The ones currently used in classrooms so even though i cite a lot of secondary sources of those scholars who've already done a lot of the heavy lifting about let's say the galileo myth or the bruno myth no one has ever done this additional step Uh, plus i'm bringing up to speed uh, all the latest secondary sources and evaluating them pitting them against each other and coming up with i think is the -the state-of-the-art answer to these questions so i I think that the take-home lesson is Don't think that just because some historical vignette appears in, let's say, a Cosmos show like Neil deGrasse Tyson, that it's representative of real history. In fact, in some ways, Cosmos 2014 was entertaining to me because of how bad the history was. I was like laughing at how awful it was. And so I think that's uh, that's part of what makes my book fun is it helps you to be a little more, uh, you know, not everything you see on the Internet is true and not everything you see on TV is true either.
0: Wow. Very interesting. And thank you again, Mike, for putting this book together. I know it's going to be a valuable resource for people as they unpack these myths. In other episodes, uh, you'll continue to to share your thoughts on these myths between science and religion that have developed over the years and what you discuss in your book. Well, listeners, it's your turn. What are your thoughts? You can also get your uh, hands on a copy of Unbelievable and learn more about it at unbelievablemyths.com. That's unbelievablemyths.com. And you can find the book by inquiring at your favorite bookstore. Find the rest of my conversations with Michael Keyes at idthefuture.com or search for idthefuture in your favorite podcast app. For ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks so much for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.